Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word today from the Gospel of John. A little bit of an extended reading and then a focus uh, for the message, <coughs> excuse me, on just the, uh, the last portion of what we'll read together. These are the words of Jesus to his disciples mere hours before his arrest and crucifixion. To the disciples and to us, he says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say Show us the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing And they will even do greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with the work of your Holy Spirit to bring about hearing and understanding and application, and appreciation, and worship, and devotion, and obedience, and everything else that we need. Lord, to live in your presence, to experience your promises, to enjoy them, to live for you in this present world, because your presence makes the present tolerable. Father, I ask that my words do not get in the way of your word, especially on such an important topic, but I pray that your spirit will work to teach and to instruct, to comfort, to assure, to convict, to compel, to do work that will bring glory to Jesus, because that is his purpose. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O Father God, that we do pray and ask these things.
Amen. Would you please be seated? And a very special welcome and hello to those joining with us in our live stream today. We're so glad that you are a part of the Oak Park family as well. Please remember you can text in comments and questions, prayer praises and prayer requests to 805-481-7092. And if you have never texted us before, or if you've texted but we do not know who you are, please send your name too. That would be really helpful. And we would really appreciate that. We look forward to hearing from you. The topic today is so important because, surprise, surprise, America is in a crisis. Now, it is not a political crisis, although we are in a political crisis. It is not an economic crisis that I'm talking about, although we are in an economic crisis. We're in an economic crisis because of the political crisis. They are very deeply related. What I'm talking about today is kind of a social crisis, a cultural crisis, so to speak. So put a peg in that and remember that for a moment. Now we're going to talk about something a lot more fun. Do you remember the game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yeah. (sighs) Hallelujah, the Spirit is present and moving mightily. Praise Jesus, I want to be a millionaire. Woohoo! That's what we're getting excited about. Yeah. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was a great show. It was a lot of fun. But if you remember the premise of the show, it was you had to answer a series of trivia questions and you had to accomplish certain rounds and all that kind of stuff. But if you got into trouble and you received a question you may not be very sure of the answer or did not know the answer of, you had a few options for aid and assistance, right? You had some help. You could choose a 50-50. There was four, four answers to the question. You could have two of them taken away. So you basically had a 50-50 chance of guessing the right question. That's, a, that's actually pretty helpful. That's pretty good. Number two, you could ask the audience to vote on the different answers, and then you could decide if you wanted to go with the answer that most of the audience thought was correct. Remember, stupidity is contagious. The crowd is not always right. But that was a helpful option as well. The last option was you could phone a friend, right? Now, it's really, it's really kind of amazing because the, the, the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, was on for like 15 years or whatever it was. And that option was very popular. They would phone a friend. It would be a person. They would pre-designate, and they would have the phone, uh, the call already set up. And Who Wants to Be a Millionaire ran that part of the help for many, many years until they realized that the friend who was being phoned had internet access and was Googling the answers to the question. And so they finally had to stop asking or stop offering the option to phone a friend for help. And they did some other things with theirs. Uh, They did some other things. They isolated the friend so they didn't have internet access and stuff like that. But today, how many of us and how many Americans in general actually have a friend they could phone? Now, now, most of us probably have someone that we're most acquainted with that we could actually phone them for help with a trivial question in life. But how many of us can call someone 
at two o'clock in the morning and we know they will pick up or answer the voicemail very quickly when they find it's from us. How many of us, if our car breaks down the side of the road, have somebody we could call that is not AAA, not somebody we pay to come and rescue us? When we receive devastating news of the loss of a friend, that compulsion automatically is that we need to talk to someone, we need to tell someone, who do we call? A spouse, a family member, or a friend. But how many of us have those friends to call in that time of need? Recent research has shown that in America, that is becoming a rarer and rarer option for people. Most recent stats are from just over a year ago, and I'm sure these numbers are horribly out of date now because as the pandemic after effects continue to work their way through our culture, these numbers will only escalate. Only 27% of American men have at least six people they would classify as friends. A full 15% of American men have zero friends. Isolation tends to breed all sorts of negative, self-destructive behaviors and societally destructive behaviors. The numbers for women, of course, are a little bit better. They tend to be a little bit more naturally relation-oriented than men. But the numbers for women are climbing as well. We have a friendship crisis. Who to call in the hour of need. That's one of the ways I think the church can really be of aid and benefit to our culture. Building stronger friendships. Expanding the circle. Expanding the network. Hoping people can build those kind of relationships. And that's really important and we do, we desperately need actual people that we can talk to and that we could, we could count on to have a friend and to be a friend. Oh, that's so important. But what this has to do with our message topic today is this. While we desperately need friends, and yes, we as a church need to do a better job, and that's a huge task of helping people be better friends, We've also got to remember that our friend, our spouse, our relative, our our close friend is not the first person that we are to go to in a time of crisis. The Lord Jesus is here with us. And we must never usurp his presence, his power, his place in our lives, even in the midst of a crisis with another person. And I'm saying those people are really important. We've got to have that. But let's focus on Jesus first. In our story today from the Gospels, Jesus knows his hour is coming. He knows he is soon going to be arrested. He is going to be tried. He is going to be accused of crimes he did not commit. He is going to be found guilty even though he is guiltless. He will be sentenced to death. He will be executed and he will be tortured prior to the execution. He knows that is coming. For more than three years, he has wandered the countryside with this ragtag group of men he called disciples, learners, students, apprentices, 
The final test was coming. He had taught them. He had preached to them. He had explained things to them. He had shown them the reality of of his true nature as God in the flesh. He has worked wonderful powers and miracles in their very presence. He has taught them the deep things of the scriptures, and he has taught them of the mind of God. And it's been three years, and they're still not grasping the full extent of everything he has to say. So in these few hours, it's a crash course in Jesus saying, this is the absolute essential things you need to know. This is it. This is what I've got to leave you with. Even if you don't remember everything else yet, hang on this. Because what we're going to be talking about will actually help you remember all those other things. As Jesus talks about going away and having these things happen, the disciples naturally are beginning to experience some fear, some anxiety. What is he talking about? Why is he talking about? Why does he keep talking about that? We've, we've gone from the, the, the foot washing incident, which was a high tension, and, and that was a very powerfully moving experience of a Lord and Master lowering himself to the position of a slave and demonstrating for them how they are to then in turn live out their lives. We then go into the, what we know as communion, into the Passover supper. Jesus interrupts this 1,500-year-old rote tradition of the Jewish people celebrating their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus inserts himself into the imagery and the explanation of the Passover. He is the one. He is the, the lamb sacrificed for sin. He is the one whose blood will be shed to give life, to protect from eternal death. The tension rises and mounts throughout this evening. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Don't let, your, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be overwhelmed. Don't let them be overcome by this anxiety. You believe in God, believe also in me. Yes, I am going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that's, that's not the, the, the mansion in glory like the old the hymn that we have. That, that's preparing the, the guest spot. That's, that's preparing for family coming over to the home. That's the imagery there. And then Jesus says, if I go, I will send someone to help. I will send an advocate. The spirit of truth will come and help you. Jesus identifies this advocate, this spirit of truth as the Holy Spirit in chapter 14, verse 26. The advocate is one who will be on our side he will be with us. Though the word there is parakletos, which actually means alongside called. It's the one who comes alongside to help. And it actually became a legal term as the, the word was used more and more in that culture. It became to mean a lawyer, an advocate, a counselor, a mediator. Someone who will stand side by side and help you in defense, help you cope, help you deal. That's the advocate. The one who is with you and on your side, in your corner. We all need that. This advocate will be the spirit of truth in stark contrast to modern lawyers and counselors and advocates. 
we'll scrub that from the recorded version. Okay, Billy? All right. You never know. There just might be a lawyer watching one of these days, and then I don't want to deal with the lawsuit. But the spirit of truth, Jesus is assuring them that I will not leave you alone. You will have someone with you. It will be an advocate for you, and it will be the spirit of truth. No more falsehood. No more uncertainty. But truth. Spirit, the word spirit of truth of the name spirit of truth emphasizes the work of the spirit in relationship to Jesus. Jesus was the word of God who was very God, is the word of God made flesh. And as Jesus was made flesh, as God in the flesh, he was full of grace and truth. In our passage today, Jesus says, you know where I'm going because I am the way and the truth and the life. There is no duplicity, there's no falsehood, there's no uncertainty in who Jesus is. Because Jesus stands not only as true, but as the truth. That's why he is so reviled and so attacked today in a postmodern society that is repulsed by truth and wants to replace truth with truths. Self-generated, self-made ideas and monikers and labels and identities that fly in the face of the truth. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, is to help you and be with you forever. There will be no need for phoning a friend. There will be no need for asking the audience to weigh in and then going with whatever truth may be determined by them. The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit himself will be with you and with you forever. In the times of joy and in the times of absolute devastation, in the times when you are surrounded by friends, and in the times when you are absolutely all alone, in the times of plenty and in the times of want, the times of success and the times of failure, the times of strong faith and the times of doubt, the Holy Spirit will be with you and he will be with you forever. That's Jesus' promise. And Jesus can't lie because he's the truth. The Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus himself. This is one of those things as we're getting into, we wade into this. This is just one of those overwhelming intellectual things about the Christian faith. But the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. After all, Jesus says that I will send the advocate, and in the very next statement, he says, I will come to you. I'm sending the Spirit, but I will come to you. They're one and the same. Prior to his ascension into heaven, Jesus assured the disciples, I am with you always. You see, the Spirit is another. And the word another is is from the Greek word alos, which means of the same kind. It is not the word heteros, which means of a different kind. Jesus says that the Spirit will be an of the same kind of helper as I am to you. 
The Spirit is just like Jesus. In fact, the only other time that word parakletos, the advocate, is used, it is used of Jesus himself. It's from the Apostle John who was here taking in these events and listening intently, even if he didn't understand everything. Later in his life, he finally got it, and he writes in in chapter 2 of his first letter, he says, if we sin, and that's a rhetorical question because it means when we sin, we have an advocate. We have a parakletos. We have a counselor. We have a mediator with the Father, and his name is Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Jesus already identified himself as the truth. The spirit of truth will bear witness to the truth of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit indwells, which means takes up residence within the hearts of every person who truly does believe in Jesus as Savior and accepts him as Lord and yields their life to him. This is through faith, and it's through repentance, it's through confession, and yes, it's even through baptism. Acts 2.38 says that we are, when, we are, uh, when we repent of our sins through our faith in Christ and we are baptized, we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. The Spirit of Jesus is within each person who believes The scriptures affirm this over and over. What we're talking about here is a Christian concept called the Trinity. The Trinity is a very uniquely Christian concept. The word is not found in the Bible, but it's from the Latin word meaning threeness. You see, as Jesus taught, he confused and confounded people. As the disciples then eventually wrote and other followers of Jesus wrote what we know as the New Testament, it was the things Jesus said and the things that Jesus did. And then it's the talk of the Holy Spirit. And the language they used took a while for people to figure out. But all of a sudden they were understood that, that there is God the Father. And then there is the Word of God who was God and the Word became flesh and His name was Jesus And so Jesus is God as well, but he's not a separate God. You see, there is one God. We're not polytheists. We're not many God people. And then there's all this language about the Holy Spirit. God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. Why are human beings relational creatures? Why do we need other people? As much as they annoy and irritate and get on our nerves, we still need people, right? Because the God who created us in his image is a relational God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have existed from eternity This term trendy finally came into use and into vogue about 150 years or so after Jesus' resurrection. You see, the scholars and the, 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 the preachers and the theologians had taken a while to really wrestle with this deep truth of Scripture. But that's what they finally concluded. It's the best expl- explanation for the language that is used of all three. God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. A very simple definition is one from, from a, 
from a, 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 a pretty, pretty helpful book on theology. It's a good definition. The Trinity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are each fully and equally God in eternal relation with one another. The biggest critics of the Christian faith say, oh, well, Christians worship three gods, three distinct gods, three different gods. No, we worship one God, God who is the Father, God who is the Son, and God who is the Holy Spirit. And they say, well, that doesn't make any sense. That is, that is intellectually unfeasible because three cannot be one. Well, if God is completely understandable, would he really be God? And I have a really cool little mathematical way to explain this. One plus one plus one is three. But one times one times one is one. Father, Son, and Spirit. But as this, the Spirit is also a divine, is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a force, an entity, an influence. The Holy Spirit is a person. And this is where some of that language of Scripture got so confusing for people for so many years and still confuses us. Because the actions attributed to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit testifies. The Holy Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit guides. The Holy Spirit leads. The Holy Spirit searches. Those are the actions and the activities of a person not an energy force or influence, but a person. The scriptures speak of the Holy Spirit suffering. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, despised, blasphemed, and resisted. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. You you can't lie to an object. You can only lie to another person. And then the scriptures bring out the characteristics of the spirit. The spirit has a mind, the mind of the spirit. The spirit has knowledge, emotion, love, will, goodness. Holy Spirit's a person, but the Holy Spirit's also a divine person. The Holy Spirit is God. He shares the same attributes that we attribute to God the Father. The Spirit is omnipresent, which means all-present, accessible everywhere. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent, omnipowerful, all-powerful. Just like God, the Holy Spirit is omniscient, all-knowledge, all-knowing. The Holy Spirit himself is eternal, And he does the things that God does. In Scripture, the Holy Spirit is named equally with God the Father and God the Son. In fact, the very creed that we pronounce over someone who is baptized into Christ, they are baptized into Jesus in the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Then, to make it super simple, He's actually called and named God in the scriptures. 2 Samuel and Acts and 1 Corinthians. 
So that's the theology for the day. Jesus says, I am leaving, but I have to go to prepare a place for you. I am not leaving you alone. I will send you an advocate. I will send you the Holy Spirit as the one who will be with you forever. And in fact, as, and says, if, if the Spirit is with you, it's as good as me being there because the Spirit is, is also me. It's my Spirit who is with you. What's the practicality of this for us? How exactly does the Holy Spirit as God himself help us? Well, he guided the writers of the New Testament. He guided not only the writers, but the writing of the New Testament. So the books that we have that tell us about Jesus, the Gospels, the the book that we have that tells us about how the early church started and expanded and began to turn the world upside down, the letters we have from the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, the brothers of Jesus, James and Jude, We know that these documents were guided by the spirit of truth. Therefore, they have veracity and authenticity and authoritativeness. It's why the Bible, especially the New Testament, is the enduring word of God. The intellectual challenges that have been raised against it have continued to fall short. The attempts to confiscate and destroy For every Bible that is destroyed, another hundred are printed. That's the way it's been throughout history. It is the words of the New Testament that have changed nations and empires and civilizations and changed the greatest enemy of all, the human heart. Thank you. I hear that. Because after all, the greatest enemy is not a political ideology. It is not a despot. It is not even the forces of Satan and hell himself. The greatest enemy we face is our own fallen human heart set in sin. And Jesus came to set us free from slavery to sin. That's how we're redeemed. That's how we're bought back. The word of God is the word of truth. So that's why we go to it in times of need. We are comforted, we are confronted, we are changed by the power of the Word of God. It is the Holy Spirit, particularly working through the Word, that confirms God's love for us even in very difficult times. Romans chapter 5, the entire book of Romans is this necessary reading, but Romans chapter 5 is super important, probably right behind Romans. Chapter 8 is the most important chapter in the whole book. The Apostle Paul writes this, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, not our natural first response to problems and trials, but we can rejoice for we know that they help us develop endurance and, in de- and endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. Then in your notes, if you have a pen, if you have a knife, cut your, cut your finger and put, put a blood mark right there. No, don't do that. Just extreme example. Break out a pen, break out a highlighter, whatever it is. This last sentence of this passage, verse 5. 
For we know how dearly God loves us. How do we know how dearly God loves us? Because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. God's love is confirmed to us. But not only that, the Holy Spirit intercedes with the Father on our behalf by constant prayer. That's right, the Holy Spirit is praying for you right now by name, by specific situation, possibly even praying about things you don't want God to know about. But he's the Holy Spirit, so he knows. As the advocate, and remember that's the same language of Jesus and we have Jesus as the advocate. The advocate is praying for you. The, the, the advocate is your defense eternity. Yeah, defense eternity. Wow, that's brilliant. Man, we're going to market that. Somebody write that down. Defense eternity. Man, that's some good stuff for a Sunday morning right there. Yeah. I'm going to lay off the coffee next time. Um, defense attorney. The, the Spirit is the one praying for you by name, circumstance, and situation right now in God's ear for you. The praises, the struggles. We know that from Romans 8. Hey, there it is. Best chapter in the book of Romans. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, which means the Holy Spirit is with us, helping us constantly. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us. Underline that, circle that. With groanings that cannot be expressed in words, and the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. The Spirit prays, the Spirit pleads on your behalf, in your best interest, with God the Father. The Holy Spirit not only does that work on our behalf, but he does work within us. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sin in the first place to come to Jesus and place our faith in Jesus, but it is the Holy Spirit who once we belong to Jesus, when we still struggle, when we stumble, when we fail, When we fight back against sin far too weakly, it is the Spirit who convicts us so that we repent. And when we repent, times of refreshing come, Acts 3.19. That time of refreshing is a renewal of the Holy Spirit's power within us. It is the Holy Spirit who then compels us to righteousness, to become more like Jesus. And any time, even when we are weak and fail and struggle and stumble, it is any time that we confess the words, Jesus is Lord. Those words are not generated from our natural self. They are not generated from the old nature. Those words, when we say them, that is the Holy Spirit directly speaking to us, in us, and through us. Because Paul says no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who produces maturity. 
grows the fruit of character. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It is the Holy Spirit through the Word of God which is called the sword of the Spirit. Sword may not be necessarily our imagery today with modern warfare, so sometimes I like to say that the, that the, the new translation, the new way to understand that is that, that, the, that the Word of God is the scalpel of the Spirit that cuts away that which remains in our earthly nature. And if you still need the imagery of sword, the sword is an instrument of death. And Paul says, we are to put to death that what remains of our earthly nature, all of the things for which Jesus had to die so that we could be forgiven. And let the sword of the Spirit stab and skewer those things of the earthly nature. There's so much more for the Holy Spirit. But know this, you, by believing in Jesus, by, it, by having allegiance to Jesus, you are not alone. And it's not just because you're part of a community and that's a super important and that needs to be completely celebrated and enjoyed and reinforced. But because of your faith, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, God himself resides within you. Amen. Thank you, Janet. And you are never alone. You are never forsaken. You are never overwhelmed with the odds because God himself is with you.